All right, our last case of the day is Cruz versus Garland. And Ms. Vera, I understand you'll be arguing and also introducing your co-counsel. All right, go ahead. May it please the court, Paulina Vera, pro bono attorney with the GW Law Immigration Clinic, on behalf of petitioner Mr. Cruz Cruz. I will be splitting my time today with uh, GW Law student Cornelia Waugh. Um, in this case of first impression before the Fourth Circuit, the issue at case, at case here is whether a Virginia statute criminalizes... As you get started, could you uh, just explain for the court how you're going to split the issues so we don't step on your arguments? Certainly, Your Honor. So I will be addressing two issues, the first of which is that de novo is the appropriate standard of review. Secondly, I will be addressing that intent to deceive alone does not categorically uh, make a a statute a crime involving moral turpitude, while um, Cornelia will be addressing um, the realistic probability test. All right. Go ahead. So in this case of first impression before the Fourth Circuit, um, the issue is whether a Virginia statute criminalizing a 30-second mistake is a categorically a crime involving moral turpitude. Can I stop you right there? I don't understand how this is a statute criminalizing a mistake. I mean, I'll tell you what I think is the hardest problem in this case for me. Your client's description of what he did is inconsistent with the statute to which he pleaded guilty. Because if he made an innocent mistake because he misunderstood the officer he is not guilty under this statute. And so I don't know what to do with the fact that his testimony is inconsistent with the requirements of the statute. Well, Your Honor, um, Ms. Wah will be addressing um, how we can bring in the facts of this case under the realistic probability test. Um, I will be looking more at the elemental language, which I'm, I'm happy to address. To which he pled guilty. That's the problem that I think um, Judge Heightens is raising. He, he pled guilty to intent to deceive. Correct, Your Honor, and I am going to argue that intent to deceive alone actually does not rise to the level of a crime involving moral turpitude. But it's not just intent to deceive alone, it's intent to deceive a law enforcement officer. That, that's correct, Your Honor, and I will... It's also- not intending to deceive an insurance agent, my friend, my neighbor, I have to intend to deceive a law enforcement officer. Uh, that's correct, Your Honor, and and I will address that right now. Um, so, um, yes, there is a specific intent to deceive a law enforcement officer as to a person's identity. Um, and the government argues that this is what makes the Virginia statute inherently fraudulent. There is this idea that generally crimes involving intent to deceive are considered to involve moral turpitude, but note the qualifying language generally. I asked this panel to look at our sister circuits in the 7th, 8th, 9th... Why, and- why don't we address our circuit? What what would you do with the our Ramirez case? Yes, and, and um, actually the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th circuits were favorably cited by this court um, in the Nunez-Vasquez case. Okay, but what about Ramirez? Yes, Your Honor. And so Ramirez um, does differ from this case um, at hand because um, in, that, in that case... Um, there was a result-oriented um, approach to, well, to the way that that statute was written. So the reason that um, intent to deceive alone does not rise to a level of a crime involving moral turpitude is because, like other circuits have said, um, here a false statement can violate the statute even if it doesn't actually impede the investigation. So here the lawful intent uh, detention has already taken place, and there's no requirement that the false ID led to any actual harm. We know that legislatures know how to write those harms in the statute. If you look at Nunez-Vasquez, that was a Virginia statute which specifically listed um, the results of to avoid summons, arrest, prosecution, or to impede a criminal investigation. Um, This is similar to some some of the other cases cited by both uh, um, Cornelia and myself as well as the government. 
And Jurado Delgado, the Pennsylvania statute there, specifically listed an intent to mislead in official functions. Here we simply have an intent to deceive as to one's identity, but it is not necessarily false. Well, but it's actually not just that. It's intent to deceive about my identity after being lawfully detained, right? I don't think we can split up this statute into intent to deceive or even intent to deceive a law enforcement officer. It is intent to deceive a law enforcement officer about who you are after you have been detained. Why doesn't that necessarily have a police predictable impact on impeding an official investigation? It strikes me the only reason you would mislead someone about your official identity after having been lawfully detained is because you are trying to, well, mislead the officer for some reason, presumably because you don't want them to figure out who you really are. Yes, Your Honor, and that may be one result that does stem from this statute. I guess the analogy I'm drawing is to 18 U.S.C. 1001, which requires materiality, but materiality doesn't require that it actually affect the law enforcement investigation. It requires that it have a predictable or reasonable probability of impacting a law enforcement investigation. This seems like a really similar statute to me. Sure. Could I imagine a situation? I mean, my chamber staff came up with an example about a person who looks just like Keanu Reeves saying, I'm Keanu Reeves, and then the officer goes, really? And you're like, no, just kidding. Fine. That person, I theoretically might violate this statute, but it seems like the overwhelming likelihood of instances where you are attempting to mislead a law enforcement officer about your true identity after being detained will have at least a reasonable probability of affecting an official investigation. And again, Your Honor, that may be the case, but again, we look at minimum conduct, right, that can be prosecuted. And so again, Ms. Wall will address the realistic probability test, and sort of similar to your hypothetical, right, there was an instance there where a person without status was nervous in the moment, gave an incomplete name, and then within 30 seconds corrected that mistake. What is the minimum conduct here that could be prosecuted that does not involve deceit? So again, looking even to our own case, which we're allowed to do under the realistic probability test, we have a case where the investigation actually was not impeded because within 30 seconds, our client gave not only his real name, but additional identifying information. That is his birthday, right? And there was no impeding of the investigation because the lawful detention was not impeded. He was ultimately charged, went to court. So none of those lawful processes. But the statute itself requires with the intent to deceive the law enforcement officer. So what is the conduct that could be punished under this statute that doesn't require an intent to deceive? Your Honor, I see that I have about 20 seconds left. May I? Yes. Okay, and could I piggyback on that? It seems to me your better argument is not that there is an intent to deceive because he admitted intent to deceive, but that it isn't conduct that independently violates a moral norm. And I haven't heard you talk about that at all. Are you abandoning that as part of your argument or not? No, Your Honor. And I think the Eighth Circuit case of Bobadilla is instructive in that because in looking at very similar conduct to our present case, the Eighth Circuit said, right, folks that get stopped in a traffic stop are maybe not acting their best self, right? They may be nervous in the moment. They may give misinformation. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that conduct is going to be morally turpitudinous such that it is a categorical match to a crime involving moral turpitude. Thank you, Your Honor. And I will now turn it over to you. All right. Thank you. And Ms. Wall, we'll hear from you. Good 
Your Honors, my name is Cornelia Wallace, student attorney with the GW Law Immigration Clinic. I would like to highlight that this case is about 30 seconds, 30 seconds that now has a family wondering if a lifelong partner and a loving father will remain home with them. So today I will discuss the realistic probability test and conclude that no morally turpitudinous conduct was involved in Mr. Cruz's conviction. His conduct did not shock the public's conscience as being base, vile, or morally depraved. In this case, the BIA erred in a number of ways. First, the BIA, with no, stop, with no support from any authoritative case law, agreed with the IG that since Mr. Cruz pled guilty to his conviction, he was restricted from pointing to his own case for the realistic probability test. The BIA also concluded that Mr. Cruz did not submit a plea colloquy or a court transcript and therefore could not prove that the statute was overbroad. In his so how is it that the realistic probability test... Um, undoes his guilty plea to intent to deceive? Um, Your Honor, so the realistic probability test doesn't undo his guilty plea, but what we're arguing here today is... I guess, I mean, undermine the fact that he pled guilty to intent to deceive. Could you repeat your... How, how does the realistic probability test undermine, undercut, discount the fact that he pled guilty to intent to deceive? Well, Your Honor, based on case law, a guilty plea never precludes the court from looking at the realistic probability in terms of a non-citizen. And even in the case that we're arguing today, Your Honor... What is your best case and uh, for realistic probability here? Well, Your Honor, for realistic probability, we've cited to Silva Trevino, we've cited to Nunez Alvarez, and even cases where non-citizens have pled guilty, such as Matara Ferreira, United States versus Johnson. And in these cases, Your Honor, defendants have pled guilty, and the court never used that against them to say that they are not eligible for the realistic probability test. Oh, I don't think there's any question that your client is entitled to the realistic probability test. I guess I'll just, I'll ask you the question I asked your colleague, which is, when I read the blue brief's description of what he did, that person is not guilty under this statute. And so I don't know how, but but he pleaded guilty, but your client pleaded guilty. And so I, 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 I certainly agree your client can take advantage of the realistic probability test. He can certainly point to other people's cases. He can even point to the facts of his cases, but whether it's preclusion, whether it's full faith and credit, I just don't understand how, as a way of showing that this statute applies in a particular situation, we can look at the fact of your client's case and his account of an action that, as described by him, does not violate the statute. He's not guilty. He should have pled not guilty, and he would have been acquitted. And so I I don't see how we can consider that. And I guess when Judge Thacker says, what case says we can do that? Well, Your Honor, there is no case law that says you can or can't do that. Um... There are many situations where non-citizens have pled guilty to offenses, but I don't believe that in any way, Your Honor, bars him from showing that his conduct in this case doesn't rise to a level of moral turpitude. Do you know if he was advised, did he have counsel in the underlying proceeding? So later that he did have a public defender in this case, Your Honor. Do we know if he was advised of the immigration consequences of his guilty plea under Padilla versus Kentucky? Your Honor, may I get back to that on rebuttal? Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. It just strikes me. So Padilla is the case that the Supreme Court says um, non-citizens have a right to be advised of the immigration consequences of being pleading guilty um, before they do so. And it, it strikes me here, I guess one question is, did his counsel tell him? And if, 
And if his counsel didn't have him, he might have had an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. Yes, Your Honor. I understand. So, Your Honor, I would like to move on to the fact that Mr. Cruz's testimony in this case was sufficient. He testified under oath before the immigration judge, and the government did not dispute the facts involved in this case. I would also like to add that general district courts in Virginia are courts not off record, so oftentimes judges are not required to even put plea bargains in writing, and they don't necessarily have... Well, excuse me, counsel. Have you been in a general district court in Virginia? No, Your Honor. Okay. There is no such thing as a written record, okay? There are no plea colloquies. I mean, it seems to me that in reading the briefs and listening to argument, there's a disassociation from reality going on here as to what occurs in a criminal court, in a general district court in Virginia, when there might be 200 or 300 people processed in two hours. And both sides are discussing a situation that is not reality, and that gives me a lot of concern. So perhaps you could take that into account. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. To proceed, Your Honor, I would like to highlight Mr. Cruz's conduct the day of his arrest. The police officer approached Mr. Cruz and asked him for his name in incoherent Spanish. Mr. Cruz gave his correct first and last name, which is typically acceptable, and noticed that there was some confusion. Within 30 seconds, Your Honor, Mr. Cruz wrote down his correct first and last name and gave his date of birth. Your Honor, in this case, Mr. Cruz's conduct was not morally... So are you saying he never gave a different name? Yes, Your Honor. He gave an incorrect middle name, but what I'm arguing here today... He left that part out. I'm sorry, Your Honor. That's the key part. That's the deceit. Yes, Your Honor. So he gave his correct first and last name and an incorrect middle name. The police officer did ask him for his name again, this time in complete English, and this is when Mr. Cruz wrote down his name for him on a piece of paper and also gave his date of birth. Your Honors, I understand that Mr. Cruz's guilty plea is of some contention, but I do want to point out that we're looking at the minimum conduct that was prosecuted, and Mr. Cruz was arrested and convicted and charged for the Virginia Statute 19.2-82.1. Regardless of whether he pled guilty, Your Honor, the conduct on the day he was arrested falls outside the scope of what is typically considered to be a crime involving moral turpitude. I thank you, Your Honors. All right. Thank you. You have time in rebuttal, and we'll hear from Mr. Minnick now. Good morning. May it please the Court, William Minnick representing the respondent. The offense in this case is a crime involving moral turpitude because it expressly requires an intent to impair a government function by deceit. And so the Board's decisions in matter of... Well, it doesn't require an intent to impair a government function. According to the wording of the statute, it's an intent to deceive the law enforcement officer as to his real identity. That's right. Correct, Your Honor. So the statute does involve a specific intent to deceive, and it bears on a government function. So the Board's decisions in Flores and Gerardo are controlling. So you're saying that it necessarily requires a violation of an independent moral norm, which is what we say is generally required for a crime involving moral turpitude. There has to be an independent norm, moral norm that's being violated, something intrinsically 
offensive morally about this conduct. Isn't that correct? That is correct, Your Honor. And, um... Okay, so then if I come into court and I'm charged with no operator's license, not driving without a valid operator's license, which happens every day in Virginia, okay? And I have at the scene of being detained lawfully by the police, I tell the police officer that I'm my sister, okay? I intend to deceive the police officer because I'm underage or because I already have a speeding ticket. And when the officer runs the record check, he's going to find that I have a speeding ticket. And what independent moral norm is violated because I've been driving a car six months short of my 18th birthday and I don't want the police to know about it? Where's the independent norm being violated there? It's the intent to deceive, Your Honor. In Nunez, this court... So you're saying per se it's intent to deceive. That's all that's required. So if I just, if I lie to an officer about my age, okay, let's just say that I lie to an officer about my age per se, you're saying that's a crime involving moral turpitude. This court has said in Ramirez... No, but I'm asking you about the independent moral norm. Deception. This court says fraud, deception. These are aggravating factors that make violation of a mere statute. They elevate it to violating a moral norm. This court said... So if I drive with, excuse me, so if I drive without a valid operator's license in Virginia because I am six months short of my birthday, I have violated an independent moral norm when I tell the officer that I'm my sister who is old enough to drive and has a license? If the statute requires an intent to deceive and you make a false statement to the police officer, yes, that's a crime involving moral turpitude. In Ramirez, this court gave examples of aggravating factors that elevate mere violation of a law to a violation of a moral norm. And it said we hold that obstruction of justice in that case is not a CIMT because it may be committed without fraud, deception, or any other aggravating element that shocks the public. Right. But in Ramirez, it also says that it's a CIMT if the intended obstruction is an immoral act or result. So what is immoral about driving without a license and telling the police officer that I'm my sister? What's intrinsically more immoral about that? You're saying just because I lied. Anytime I lie about my age, about anything, and I'm driving without a license, I've violated an independent moral norm of society. The statute requires an intent to deceive, yes. If you intend to deceive the officer and make a false statement to the police officer, that's an obstruction type crime with an aggravating element, deception. Okay. Can somebody intend to deceive then by initially giving an incorrect name and then correcting it? I mean, is an independent norm violated if I give the wrong name intending to deceive, but then I correct it a few minutes later? Have I then committed an intrinsically immoral act by initially giving a false name even though I corrected it? Yes, Your Honor, because the moral turpitude derives from 
your initial response to the police, your intent to deceive them and give them a false name. The fact that it's subsequently corrected does not go back and erase the moral turpitude. Well, in moral turpitude, in Ramirez, we noted that the BIA defines moral turpitude as behavior that, quote, shocks the public conscience as being inherently base, vile, or depraved. How does what Judge Keenan is describing, or the facts of this case, how is that moral turpitude as the BIA has defined it, inherently base, vile, or depraved? They defined, I was talking in Flores, they set out their definition that inherently base, vile, or depraved includes obstructing an important government function through deceit. And then they built on that in a matter of Jurado, in which they said deceit, the deceit is critical. And then in Ramirez, this court, in discussing Jurado, said in Jurado, deceit was the critical aggravator that rendered an obstruction offense a CIMT. And, of course, in Ramirez, it went on to point out that the statute in that case did not involve an intentional, an intent to deceit. So that offense was not a CIMT. But the aggravating factor that elevates an obstruction-type offense above a mere violation of a law is intent to deceive. That's what the board said in Flores and Jurado. Okay, so if my license, if my driver's license says that I require corrective lenses, okay, and I tell my updated driver's license, and I give the police officer my old one that doesn't show corrective lenses back when my vision was good, am I then committing a crime involving moral turpitude because I'm saying, or let's, or we can even go back to my sister, go back to my sister has better vision than I do, so I'm giving her license. That is immoral and depraved? I mean, that wouldn't be a violation of the statute. Why wouldn't it? I'm giving, I'm saying that I'm my sister. Oh, okay. And I apologize. I think I confused the hypothetical as I launched. But it seems to me that you're just saying ipso facto, if you intend to deceive, doesn't matter about how minor it is. If you say something that's not true with the intent to deceive, case over, done, signed, sealed, and delivered. Well, I mean, under the statute at issue here, yes, if you give a false name to a police officer after you've been detained, after the officer asks you for your name, with the intent to deceive the officer as to your identity, then yes, I mean, that's a serious crime. It's an important government function. I mean, once officers detain someone, it's important in real time that they ascertain who they're dealing with to see if the person owns the vehicle and is licensed to operate the vehicle and has outstanding warrants. So, yes, in terms of this statute, once you intend to deceive and give a false name after you've been detained with the intent to deceive the police officer, that's morally turpitudinous. It's the intent to deceive under matter of Flores and matter of Jurado. So it doesn't matter how little the intent is. You're saying if you have a scintilla of intent to deceive, that's... I guess what I'm saying is it's not the underlying crime. Like, it's not, it doesn't encompass the reason you were 
pulled over by the police in the first place if you were driving on a suspended license or underage. The moral turpitude doesn't derive from that. It derives from after you've been detained, lying to the police with the intent to deceive. So lying to the police is inherently base, vile, or depraved, no matter what you're lying about. That's your case, isn't it? With the intent to deceive. In other words, if you lie. After having been lawfully detained. About your identity. Right. So if you lie to the police about your identity with the intent to deceive them, I'm telling you I'm my sister. She's old enough to drive. That is automatically base and deprived and immoral. Because it's done with an intent to deceive, yes. Under the board's decisions, which are controlling here, Flores and Jurado, obstructing the government with an intent to deceive is, under the board's definition, inherently base, vile, and depraved. What about the Keanu Reeves hypothetical I asked the other side? So I'm someone who looks improbably like Keanu Reeves, and I get a lot of joy out of tricking people. And so I get pulled over, and they say, what's your name? And I say Keanu Reeves. And I do, in a moment, hope that you believe me when I say that. And I hope for that reaction, the one you're going to laugh at. I don't actually, I mean, I'm going to own up to it. Because eventually I'm going to give you my driver's license, and eventually you're going to see I'm not, in fact, Keanu Reeves. I actually think that person might violate the literal language of this statute, right? My goal is in the moment, in the moment for the law enforcement officer to believe me when I say I'm Keanu Reeves. I guess my reaction to that is, I mean. There's probably not a realistic probability of being prosecuted. Fair enough. That's true, Your Honor, and I agree with that. I guess I should have led with that. And secondly, I mean, I'm not sure the facts of that case. I know you said in the moment you wanted the officer to believe that. In the moment I want him to believe it. I don't know if there's an intent to deceive in that scenario where you're joking and you come up with, you know, you look like Keanu Reeves and you come up with that. You know you're joking. You know you're going to correct yourself. I mean, I guess in your hypothetical, what if the officer really. Maybe he'll let me go. Maybe he'll buy it and just let me go. Because he doesn't want to give a ticket to a celebrity. You said you responded and said, you know, you're going to correct yourself. What about the fact that petitioner here corrected himself within 30 seconds? Well. I think that's just not relevant to the CIMT analysis. That's the type of argument that. But it sounded like it was relevant to the analysis when you were responding to Judge Hyten's Keanu Reeves hypothetical. Well, maybe I maybe I misspoke and got caught up in the hypothetical. But the correction is not relevant to the CIMT analysis because the moral turpitude attaches when you give the false name to police with the intent to deceive them. And what happens after that? The correction doesn't erase the moral turpitude. Because that's the aggregating aggravating factor under the case law. Correct. That's correct. Intent to deceive. And even here, I mean, he did. He did correct it quickly, but it was only after having been asked a second time by the police what his name was. So it seems like at that point they had run his brother's name and it didn't check out. And he knew he was caught in the lie. So probably it seems based on on the record that there was no point in continuing. And he had been arrested before. So he knew he'd be identified from his fingerprints eventually. I mean, the fact that he gave up on trying to deceive the police doesn't erase the moral turpitude of having done it in the first place. 
And he did have a reason to give a false name. The record, the objective evidence in the record indicates that he knew he had failed to appear in his 2011 criminal case. That's shown appendix at 377, 383, 265, and 381. And he had a second reason to give a false name to police in this case because when, in addition to having failed to appear, and the record indicates that a bench warrant had been issued against him, that's appendix at 383. In addition to that, he was also then in 2013 driving on a suspended license. So perhaps the distinction between Judge Hyten's hypothetical in this case is this case bad faith, his Judge Hyten's hypothetical good faith when the deceit occurred. Well, I mean, to go back to the Keanu Reeves hypothetical, I mean, I think if there really were an intent to deceive, thinking the officer would, you might let me go, you would avoid the ticket if you could really convince the officer that you were Keanu Reeves. In that case, I think it could be prosecuted under the Virginia statute. Versus if my intent in the moment was if the officer bought it to say, ha-ha, just kidding. I think when you posed the hypothetical to them, you said, I was just joking. But I'm just going to laugh. They'll say, really? They'll look confused, and then I'll say, no, man, I'm just kidding with you. Here's my driver's license. I don't think there's a real intent to deceive. There's such a guilty play on those facts. But the other hypothetical where he's really trying to convince the officer that he's actually Keanu Reeves because he thinks he might avoid getting a ticket, I think that would be prosecuted under the statute because it's an intent to deceive, and he's given the officer a false name after being detained. And I'd also like to say that, I mean, there's no meritorious reason to give an officer a false name after having been detained. It's to avoid scrutiny or avoid arrest or deflect an investigation or pass the blame on to someone else by framing them. There's no meritorious reason for doing it. And you're saying it absolutely doesn't matter why you're doing it. It's simply the act of deception. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct under the board's definitions in Flores and Gerardo. That is correct, Your Honor. And so it doesn't matter if your conduct is independently violating a moral norm. You've intended to deceive. No, what I'm saying is the intent to deceive is baked in. You're saying it's baked in irrespective of how trivial your reason is for doing it. Yes, Your Honor. I'd like to address one thing. Your Honor asked about whether his criminal case had been vacated, and that is addressed on page 26. Oh, I didn't ask whether it had been vacated. I asked whether he'd have a plausible basis to vacate it on the grounds of ineffective assistance of counsel. He did make that argument, and it was denied in 2016. That's the footnote in his appeal brief to the board. It's page 26. So he made it in the Virginia State Courts? You said he made it. He made basically a post-conviction motion to vacate in the Virginia State Courts? It's just, and this is what they wrote in the appeal brief, it's just he attempted to vacate his plea. It was denied by the Virginia Court. And I'd also like to point out to the extent that 
the facts that he related to the immigration judge are inconsistent with his guilty plea to this offense. I'd like to invite the court's attention to Rodriguez. That's a Second Circuit case I cited in my brief. That's the case that, a published case that deferred to Flores. And there, Rodriguez has raised the argument that it was a false statement in a passport case. And he raised the argument that he honestly believed the statement wasn't false. The Second Circuit just rejected that on the basis that it was inconsistent with his guilty plea. It said, having pled guilty to the offense, he has admitted all of the elements necessary for a conviction, including knowingly submitted false information to obtain a passport. And this court should do the same. It should reject his version of events as related to the immigration judge as simply inconsistent with his guilty plea. That's what the Second Circuit did in Rodriguez. All right. Do y'all have any other questions? Thank you. All right. Thank you. We'll hear again from Ms. Vera. Thank you, Your Honor. I will address two issues on rebuttal. First is the Rodriguez case that my friend here cites to. And second is the Ramirez Sessions case of this Fourth Circuit. So regarding the Rodriguez case, I will note that that case, that statute is different from the statute that we have here at issue because the language of that statute says to knowingly make any false statement with an intent to induce or secure the issuance. Again, which necessarily involves fraud a way that we don't have here. And so I would ask this court not to conflate these concepts of deceit and fraud because as the Seventh and Eighth Circuit, excuse me, the Seventh and Tenth Circuit have pointed out in doing an analysis of deception-based CIMTs, they said that usually those types of statutes involve some sort of actual or intended harm. Again, in a way that we do not have at this present statute. Regarding the second issue of Ramirez, yes, the Fourth Circuit in Ramirez did say that deception right could be an aggravating factor such that it would make a statute rise to the level of a crime involving moral turpitude. And I would note that if intent to deceive hadn't been in that particular statute, then perhaps, yes, there would have been a finding there that that was a crime involving moral turpitude. Because again, that's... But that's the point. It is in this statute. It is in the statute we're dealing with. But Ramirez had something plus that we don't have in this statute. So the language of that is knowingly obstructs a judge in the performance of his duties. So again, the legislatures know how to write this sort of result harm in the statutes in a way that they did not in this Virginia statute. For those reasons, Your Honors, I would ask that you please remand to the Board of Immigration Appeals with instructions to remand to the immigration judge for further fact-finding consistent with the holding that this Virginia statute is not categorically a crime involving moral turpitude. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Ms. Wall. Judge Hyten, I would like to address the matter you asked me about the public defender in Padilla. So the public defender, we did try to get the relief in district court. But the public defender had made a one-line note that he advised of immigration consequences, but he did not state what type of advice was given or what the advice exactly was. And the judge held that that was enough and denied or appealing that case. 
I would also like to address um, the matter of intent to deceive in regards to the realistic probability test and Mr. Cruz. Um, even if Mr. Cruz did, in fact, have an intent to deceive when the police officer <laughs> approached him, within a matter of 30 seconds, Mr. Cruz amended his mistake. Um, I'm afraid that if we find, Your Honor, that his conduct does rise to the level of a CIMT, it would discourage other individuals from honestly communicating with police officers after making a mistake within a few seconds. I would also like to address the government's position of the hypotheticals they made up in regards to deceiving the police officer, that Mr. Cruz might have known that his name would pop up or the officer would find out who he was. There is credible testimony given by Mr. Cruz in this case. He testified on your oath, and opposing counsel never at any point disputed the facts in this case. Mr. Cruz stated that within 30 seconds, he corrected himself after the police officer asked him for his name in incoherent Spanish. He told the officer, you do not understand, and actually took a paper, wrote his name, and additionally gave his date of birth. Your Honors, this conduct is not morally turpitudinous. It is, it's not depraved, it's not vile, it was just a mistake that Mr. Cruz corrected in the moment. Thank you, Your Honors. I ask that you remand the case to the BIA. Thank you. All right, thank you very much. And on behalf of the court, we particularly want to thank um, Ms. Vera and Ms. Waugh and the entire GW Law Immigration Clinic for your uh, work on behalf of your client. And we also appreciate the able representation of Mr. Minnick on behalf of the United States. We'll come down and greet counsel and ask the court to adjourn court. Sunny day. This honorable court stands adjourned until tomorrow morning. God save the United States and this honorable court.